This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome uh, to this event, part of the RSA and Sky Sustainable uh, Business Series. Uh, my name is Ruth Wishart, and it's my very great pleasure to be chairing this afternoon. Um, and we're gathered together um, in the presence of a prophet, <laughs> a, se a self-styled chrysologist, <laughs> Um, a man who's seen and analysed more financial crises than George Osborne has had hot dinners. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. <laughs> but uh, the events which followed the end of 2007 have been of a different order, as he argues in this splendid book, which uh, does not miss the more avaricious villains of the credit crunch and hit the wall. Um, <laughs> Happily, he's a man who lends us his knowledge and experience with a very light touch. And um, reading this enormously accessible book, and I say enormously accessible because one of my many non-core skills is economics, and it's uh, an enormously accessible book. Um, and uh, once you have read it, you might be forgiven for thinking that among the more common characteristics of some of the world's major banking figures is short-term memory loss. <laughs> For um, many people in the financial services sector, the origins of the recession are already shrouded in the mists of time as they get back to business and bonuses as usual. Unfortunately, it's not business as usual for the many hundreds of thousands of people who have lost their jobs or their family homes or both in the turbulent times occasioned by the meltdown of the major uh, international banking infrastructure. Now, there have been quite a few uh, writers recently who've sought to chronicle the events leading up to that near-death experience and to trace the genesis of trading practices and products which defy the laws of natural fiscal gravity. <laughs> but uh, few have argued for urgent reform more passionately and more cogently than today's guest, a Nobel laureate whose journey through the Clinton administration and the World Bank to the current chair at uh, Columbia Business School gives him a unique insight as to where the bodies in this sorry saga are buried. Please welcome Joseph Stieglitz. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, particularly uh, this is, uh, Edinburgh is the home of uh, Adam Smith, and I should probably begin my talk with a, a little homage to him. Uh, many of the uh, cruder interpretations of Adam Smith uh, talked about the wonders of the market. Uh, Adam Smith, as you know, is the founder of modern economics and his most uh, well-known doctrine is that of the invisible hand, that the pursuit of self-interest, the pursuit of profits, would lead as if by an invisible hand to the well-being uh, of society. Well, I don't think anybody today believes that the pursuit of self-interest, which also is known as greed, uh, by the bankers led to the well-being of the global economy. Uh, and in a sense, what I want to talk about this afternoon is, uh, I, I don't want to put it uh, uh, too forcefully, why Smith was wrong. Uh, <laughs> uh, why was it that normal market forces didn't lead to the way that some of those who uh, have been the most ardent advocates of markets uh, argue that they are supposed to? Um, what I want to also uh, try to spend a few minutes talking about is why, uh, who's to blame, um, why the remedies that were put into place have not worked in the way that was hoped, and uh, where we are now, what we should be doing, uh, not only for the short run, but also for the long. Well, in response to the question of uh, who's to blame, uh, in my view, uh, at the core, uh, is uh, the answer is very simple. It's the financial sector. Uh, the financial sector is absolutely essential to a well-functioning economy. Um, it has actually a very simple set of tasks. Uh, what it's supposed to do is allocate capital, make sure that capital goes to areas where its return is highest. Uh, it's supposed to manage risks so that uh, the, uh, with, with the ability to absorb risk, higher return investments can be made. 
Um, and it's supposed to do this all efficiently, which means uh, at relatively low cost. Well, our financial sector, particularly that in the United States, misallocated capital. Uh, we had uh, low-cost capital, which could have been the basis of, of uh, one of the uh, uh, most, uh, the strongest booms in our history, but instead of uh, devoting that capital to productive areas, creating jobs, uh, investments in technology, addressing problems of global warming, they allocated it, it went to uh, uh, housing beyond people's ability to, uh, to pay. Uh, it was engaged, they were engaged in predatory lending, uh, taking advantage of uh, uh, first-time homeowners, uh, people who were not uh, experienced in managing finance. Uh, not only did it misallocate capital, it also uh, mismanaged risk, in fact, it created risk. And just to give you a, a, a little bit of feeling for the magnitude of uh, the risks that were created, uh, one company, AIG, uh, as you may know, went bankrupt as a result of the derivatives of these complex financial products that created. Uh, the bailout from the US government for this one company was $180 billion. Now, for those of you who don't know much about economics, let me just say, that's a lot of money. <laughs> uh, to put it into context, uh, shortly before that, uh, uh, the United States uh, Congress had passed a bill concerning health care to the poor, uh, poor children. Um, we are not in the United States quite as fortunate as you in having a public health care system. Uh, as flawed as uh, some of you may think your public health care system is, uh, our health care system is more flawed. Uh, I don't know if that makes you feel better, but uh, we spend uh, about 16, 17% of GDP on health care with outcomes that are worse than that of UK or France or many other countries that spend a fraction uh, of what we spend. But one of the problems of a private healthcare system as such as the United States is if you're poor, you don't have access to healthcare. Uh, now, the view of some of the conservatives in the United States is that children should do a better job of choosing their parents. <laughs> and uh, so poor children uh, have to, uh, are, should be blamed for not choosing parents who are better off, and therefore uh, it is right that they should not have access to healthcare. Well, Congress, uh, as late as uh, uh, the, the fall of 2008, passed a law saying that poor children should have access to health care, recognizing it's not just a matter of uh, fairness, a matter of justice, but also a matter of efficiency. If uh, children don't get access to health care when they need it, they can be wound up scarred for life, less productive in their later life. But President Bush vetoed this bill. Uh, he said we couldn't afford it. It would cost a few billion dollars a year. And yet, uh, just a little later, uh, he found at first $90 billion for AIG and then $180 billion. So the story tells very clearly a, a lack of sense of priorities, a, a sense of values, but also says this magnitudes of the numbers that we're talking about. While the financial sector didn't do what it was supposed to do, uh, it didn't allocate capital well, it didn't manage risk well, uh, it did all of this uh, at high cost. Uh, the financial sector in the United States, and the same thing is, is uh, true in other advanced industrial countries, including the UK, the financial sector in the United States uh, uh, garnered something like 40% of all corporate profits. Now, the financial sector, as I said, was important, but it's a means to an end, not an end in itself. And uh, it, if it does its job well, exposed, it, it increases the efficiency of the economy and rightly should get a share of that increase in productivity of the economy. But our financial sector did not lead to an increase in the efficiency of the economy and yet took 40% of all the corporate profits in our economy. Well, uh, one of the questions that one 
has to ask as an economist is, why did it perform so poorly? Uh, and at each stage of the analysis, it's like uh, peeling back an onion. Every time you get an answer to a question, it raises another question. Well, the answer to the question in part of why it did so badly is those in the financial sector had uh, perverse incentives. They had incentives for short-sighted behavior and excessive risk-taking. In fact, before the crisis, as I looked at these incentive structures, I was a little worried. The one thing that economists agree on is that incentives matter. And yet, looking at these incentives, one should have expected a crisis. And so I had predicted, as you mentioned, a crisis uh, happening. Economists are not very good uh, at predicting exactly when things happen, otherwise we would be wealthier than we are. Uh, but uh, I had, you know, predicting something was going to happen, given these perverse incentives in 2005 and 2006. Um, by 2007, I went to uh, the meeting at Davos where a lot of muckety-mucks get together and talk about uh, where the global economy is going, and I felt uh, a little bit, uh, you might say, embarrassed. Uh, I said, look, at the, uh, I had predicted the last two years that there was going to be a crisis without a clear definition of time. It hasn't happened, and there are two interpretations. One is that uh, the theories I put forward were wrong. Uh, the other is that when the crisis happens, it'll be all the worse. Of course, I preferred the first, uh, I, I, I preferred the second interpretation. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, I was right. Now, for economists, this is great because we don't have to rewrite our textbooks. <laughs> but for the world, uh, it's a disaster. The, uh, after the crisis, uh, Alan Greenspan, uh, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, who presided over much of, the, uh, of this period in which the bubble grew, uh, testified in Congress with a mea culpa, and he said, well, I had, expected Cong uh, the, the, I had expected the financial sector to do a better job of managing risk. Uh, he was surprised. But to me, uh, what I was surprised at was that he was surprised. Because looking at these incentive structures, it was uh, predictable that we would have these problems. Now, going back to the theme of peeling back the onion, one of the questions is, why were there such bad incentive structures? One of the things the market prides itself on is designing good incentive structures. Uh, the answer to that go, uh, speaks to a, um, a, a part of the market economy that we call agency theory, that those making decisions in a modern economy uh, are different, uh, uh, don't bear all the consequences of their actions. Uh, 21st century and even 20th century economics is very different from 19th century economics, let alone 18th century economics that Adam Smith was talking about. And the, those old models, uh, of, there was an owner who managed his own firm, and if he made a mistake, he bore the consequence. Uh, if he was successful, he got the fruits of that. Well, in modern economies, uh, the decision makers are corporate executives who own a small fraction of uh, the shares, so that many of the banks, uh, the shareholders did poorly, the bondholders did poorly, but the bank managers did very well for themselves. So there is a, a, a separation between ownership and control. So modern capitalism is very different from the textbook kind of capitalism uh, that we often talk about. And the result of that is that their interests, their incentives differ, and their incentives to create incentive structures are different. And so they had incentives to create incentive structures that were dysfunctional. And what we got was exactly what one should have expected. Well. Uh, the financial sector is at the core of what went wrong, but government also has to blame, mainly for not stopping the financial sector from misbehaving. If we look over the history of capitalism, there have been financial crises over and over again. There was only a, a, a short period of about three decades, or a little more than three decades, after uh, uh, the Great Depression, 
when in the United States and many other countries around the world, uh, regulations were put into place, uh, Glass-Steagall, uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission, a whole set of regulations, and they worked. Uh, it was the only period where there have not been repeated financial crises. The problem was that too many people drew the wrong conclusion as we went through after years of, of no financial crises, some, some people came to the conclusion that because we didn't have any financial crisis, we didn't have re need regulations. The regulations that have prevented the financial crisis from occurring. So under Thatcher in the UK and Reagan in the United States, there began a process of deregulation. Uh, not only was there uh, uh, this process of deregulation when new problems arose, rather than responding to them in the way that one might have thought, uh, no new regulations were imposed. Just to give you one example, uh, in 1998, the collapse of one hedge fund, long-term capital management, threatened the entire global economy. Uh, that hedge fund had engaged in uh, risky derivatives. Uh, it has exposure, this one company, was over a trillion dollars, and its collapse threatened the whole financial uh, system. And the result, uh, in response to that, the New York Fed engineered a bailout. Now, one might have thought, given that experience, that somebody would say, you need to have, you need to regulate these derivatives. That would be the natural conclusion. But what was the conclusion that the Fed and the US Treasury came to? We have to make sure we don't regulate them. Uh, it was really quite astounding. The head of the security, the, the CFTC, the regulatory body in charge of derivatives, said, uh, had said before the long-term capital management debacle that we need to do something about these derivatives. And afterwards, uh, she said, the case is compelling. And the case was so compelling that uh, the big banks uh, working with the Fed and the U.S. Treasury enacted a law to make sure she, she didn't regulate them. And so we got the kind of problem that I mentioned before in the case of AIG. Not surprising in this kind of atmosphere, not only didn't we, uh, not only did we strip away regulations, not only did we didn't adopt new regulations for the changing global economy, but we appointed regulators who didn't believe in regulation. And if you have regulators who don't believe in regulation, uh, they will demonstrate that regulation doesn't work. Uh, and Alan Greenspan uh, and Bernanke were, were two cases in point. Uh, the uh, appointments are actually quite interesting because the chairman of the Federal Reserve in the early 80s had been Paul Volcker. He brought down inflation from double-digit levels down to uh, relatively low levels. Normally, for a central banker, this would be a mark of achievement. He would be getting, given a, a Presidential Medal of Honor. Uh, certainly, he would have been reappointed. But Reagan fired him. Why? Well, because he understood that you needed regulation. And Reagan wanted somebody who didn't, uh, who wanted to strip away regulations like the Glass-Steagall. And he found him in Greenspan. But it, we shouldn't focus on just that particular person, because if he hadn't been Greenspan, he would have found some other person committed to this uh, ideology of deregulation. Well, in the list of who's to blame, I, I should mention uh, one other group, uh, economists, that is, other economists. <laughs> the, I say that because economists did help provide some of the arguments that those in the financial sector and those in government used, and Federal Reserve used, to uh, not live up to their responsibilities. They said, oh, don't regulate, rely on self-regulation. Markets are efficient and self-correcting. And the interesting thing is that already by this time, modern economic theory had explained why thou those conclusions were wrong, why Adam Smith was, uh, pardon it, uh, was wrong. Um, that uh, the models that economists had used for uh, 
many years uh, have been based on perfect information, perfect risk markets. Uh, my own work had been involved in analyzing uh, real-world situations where information is imperfect, asymmetric, risk markets are imperfect. Uh, and uh, the conclusion of that analysis is the reason that the invisible hand often seems invisible is that it's not there. Uh, that is to say, in general, markets are not, uh, are not efficient. Now, I, I, I should, you know, I, I've been uh, uh, saying, uh, uh, suggesting that Adam Smith got it wrong, but actually, Adam Smith got it right. Uh, if you read the totality of his work, including the theory of moral sentiments, a lot of his uh, uh, discussions, he was aware of many of these limitations. The real problem is the latter-day interpreters of Adam Smith forgot all the qualifications and used uh, his, his framework as, as uh, a basis of their ideology um, without uh, uh, talking about all the caveats and all the concerns that he himself had raised. Well, uh, let me talk very briefly about where we are in the global financial crisis today. Uh, we're clearly not uh, out of the woods. In fact, uh, I, I, I expect things uh, in the UK and the US to actually get uh, worse. Uh, that uh, just to give you a picture of where we are in the United States right now, one out of six Americans who would like a full-time job can't get one today. And if you look at particular social economic groups, uh, particular geographic uh, areas, we're a large country and, and there are parts of the country where the unemployment rate is lower, but there are parts where it's much higher. Among Afro-American youth, for instance, uh, the unemployment rate now is uh, 50%, one out of two. Uh, that if you look uh, 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 among men, the unemployment rate is far higher than among women. Uh, among uh, those over 50, unemployment rates are higher. The fundamental problem, the reason we aren't going to be getting out of it, is uh, best understood by thinking about the world as it was before the crisis. Uh, what had supported the American economy, and to a large extent the global economy, was a bubble. Uh, the housing bubble allowed Americans to consume, and we, we consumed really well, uh, and uh, to the point where the average savings rate in the United States, household savings rate, fell to zero. Now, it should have been clear that that was not sustainable. And it should also be clear that that which is not sustainable won't be sustained. So it was only a question of when uh, this w would, would be corrected. Um, the uh, Bush administration hoped that it would happen after the election, but you don't, the timing wasn't impeccable. Uh, the uh, result of it is, though, that the savings rate go, has gone up, as it should, uh, right now, it's around 5 6%. Historical average is around 7%. Every once in a while, you pick up the paper and you'll read some article saying that the American consumer is coming back, and then, of course, he disappears. But the point is that he shouldn't come back in the way that he was. Uh, it, it, again, we, if we were to come back, it would be just postponing the inevitable uh, correction that we will have to have. So the question is, what will fill in the gap created by the uh, uh, fact that uh, consumption is lower? Well, what filled the gap for a short while was government spending, the stimulus. Now, some people say, well, the stimulus didn't work. Look how, how high the, the unemployment rate is in the United States. But the stimulus did work. If it were not for the stimulus, the unemployment rate would have been significantly higher than it is today. So it did work. But it was too, too little, it was not well designed, and it was of too limited duration. So we are now in a phase where the stimulus is being withdrawn, and that will weaken the economy uh, still further. And because of the uh, other aspects of the uh, 
economic package, like one I'm going to come to in a minute, the bailout, getting another stimulus is not likely. Making matters worse is, in the United States, about a third of all government spending occurs at the local, state and local level. And the states have a balanced budget framework. That means their spending is limited to their revenue. Revenues are, for, to a large extent, related to property taxes. Property values are down 30 to 40 percent. Tax revenues are down uh, by 200 billion a year or more. And that means spending will go down by roughly that amount. And that's a negative stimulus. The day of reckoning has been postponed by the fact that some of uh, the stimulus package went to help the states, but that, as I said, is ending. So not only is the stimulus ending, but we're going to have this negative stimulus from the states. Well, uh, the uh, problem that the United States faces is uh, in some ways worse uh, in Europe because uh, a number of European countries, including the UK, are going about a, a po adopting policies of uh, austerity. Uh, what they talk about is that uh, there are debt is growing, they have to get the fiscal house in order, and that that necessitates uh, cutting back. For more than 75 years, there's been a conflict between two theories about what one should do in the face of an economic slowdown. Uh, whenever the economy slows down, uh, slows down dramatically, tax revenues go down, and typically expenditures go up because you need things for unemployment and other social needs. And the result of this is the inevitable deficits go up. And so the two alternative theories about what you should do, one is cut back spending and raise taxes. The other is you need to stimulate the economy to get the economy going. The first theory I, I refer to is the Hooverite theory in honor of President Hoover, who presided over the Great Depression, the beginning of the Great Depression, where he, his policies uh, converted the uh, stock market crash into the Great Depression, uh, much to his credit. And uh, the second is referred to as Keynesian policies. Well, we've had uh, many tests of these two alternative theories. Uh, the most recent set of tests were uh, in East Asia, uh, engineered by the IMF. Nobody would voluntarily undertake these tests, except in Europe. Um, the, uh, uh, the IMF marched into East Asia, told them as their economies went into uh, crisis, uh, to cut back expenditures, uh, to get their fiscal house in order, and the result was uh, downturns were turned into recessions, recessions turned into depressions. Um, the magnitude of the, what happened uh, was uh, illustrated by the fact that unemployment on the central island of Indonesia, Java, went up to 40 percent. So as things get bad here, you can always think of them being not as bad as they are were in Java. But um, the, uh, out of all these forced experiments, we have a wealth of data. Economists love data. Uh, uh, we gather the data at the expense of these poor countries, but they unambiguously show that uh, one of these theories is right and the other theory is wrong. Uh, the theory that says that let's get the deficit down and that will inspire confidence and that will lead to investment uh, has essentially no support. Uh, the implication is that you can't ignore the deficit, but one has to design, uh, not cut back expenditures, but redesign the expenditures to make sure that they're directed at uh, increasing the productivity of the economy. If you do that, growth will there'll be growth in the short run and the long run. With that growth will come tax revenues. And in the long run, the deficits will actually uh, come down. Well, uh, that was one part of the, uh, the stimulus. The fiscal policy is one part of the response. Uh, the two other parts, just mentioning very uh, briefly, one of them uh, was 
uh, at the origins of the crisis, as I mentioned, was the housing crisis. Uh, president Bush did nothing about that. When President Obama, when Obama became president, he did a little, but what he did was much too little. The result of that is that the housing crisis continues that uh, two million Americans lost their home in 2008, two million in 2009, and we expect in 2010, two and a half to three and a half million Americans will lose their homes. So the numbers are actually increasing. One out of four Americans who have a mortgage owe more on their house than the value of their, uh, the home. So we have a social problem, not only an economic problem. We have this strange situation of a country where we have increasing numbers of homeless people and increasing numbers of vacant houses. Uh, clearly a manifestation that normal economics is not working. The third part uh, of the addressing uh, the crisis was, was the bailout. Uh, here I should say that, that uh, uh, as I look at the bailouts in different countries, uh, as, a, as a teacher, as a teacher, we grade on the curve, and grading on the curve. Okay, there is good. Uh, there is a certain irony of, 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 of having this uh, session in uh, an RBS uh, tent. <laughs> uh, well, they, uh, as I was saying that, that while uh, one can criticize the bailouts in different countries, um, Compared to the UK, uh, Americans uh, have to get an F uh, because uh, what we did is we just poured money into the banks without conditions. Uh, the result of that is the money, the argument that was put forward was that it would lead to more credit, more lending. And what did they use that money for? For paying out bonuses, for paying out dividends, but not for more lending. Even today, lending is lower than it was in 2007. Um, the, um, in, uh, in Japan, different cultures are different. In Japan, when a CEO uh, leaves his company into bankruptcy, uh, the tradition is you commit harry-carry. <laughs> uh, in the UK, at least you still have a tradition, not quite so extreme, but of resigning. In the United States, the response was, how big of a bonus do we get? <laughs> and uh, the larger the losses, the bigger the bonus. After all, it took great risk taking to, uh, to manage the size of losses that they had managed. Well, uh, as I said, uh, the result of the flawed bailout is that the economy isn't, credit isn't flowing. Uh, problems are getting worse, particularly among small and medium sized businesses. Uh, and because when we gave money in the United States to the banks, uh, we didn't get back fair market value in terms of preferred shares uh, or other, uh, our deficit is much larger than it otherwise would be. The final point, the final aspect of it uh, I'm mentioning is, is uh, regulation. We finally passed a regulatory bill in the United States. Actually, most of the countries have still not done what uh, two, and a, two years after the crisis. It's really quite striking. Uh, but uh, I described the bill that was passed as sort of like smelly Swiss cheese. Uh, it has a number of good principles, 
But every time there was a good principle, the big banks came in and made sure that there were so many exemptions and exceptions that the force of the, the regulation was totally undermined. Well, uh, let me go on and talk a little bit about the long-run problems, because while we focus on the failure to get the economy going, and, and I think uh, the likelihood, because of the flawed ways that we responded, is that we are moving towards a Japanese-style malaise. We are not going to have a, a strong recovery. Uh, there is going to be a new normal with much higher unemployment than in the past. Uh, while, while we were been focusing on these short-run problems, the long-run problems have been festering. Uh, and there are a whole list of long-run problems that I, I talk about in the book. Uh, the demographic change, the necess necessity of changing the structure of our economies to reflect uh, uh, going from manufacturing to service sector to a knowledge economy, changing global comparative advantage as a result of uh, globalization. Uh, the fact that two sectors uh, got, had gotten totally out of proportion, the real estate sector and the financial sector, um, all of these are, are problems that we needed to address, but the resources not, that we have available today to address those uh, is much diminished. One, one aspect I just want to mention very briefly that I think is very important as a teacher that I feel very strongly is that not only did the financial sector result in a misallocation of money, of capital, but it, uh, it resulted in a misallocation of something that's even more scarce, human capital. Uh, in earlier years, in earlier decades, the best of our students that graduate from college, universities, would go into a variety of areas, into research, uh, into uh, medicine, uh, into teaching, uh, uh, into a whole variety of, of occupations. But increasingly, in the last 15 years, I saw larger and larger proportions of our best students being attracted by the disproportionate money of those in the financial sector. Uh, as you may know, even the best physicists were being attracted uh, into, into the finance. And that has resulted in, 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 in as I say, a, I think a massive misallocation of, of our human capital. And perhaps that's the silver lining on this cloud that we are now going to, to uh, get a more rational use uh, of, of, of our talent. Well, uh, one of the things I emphasize in the book is that even the way we measure economic performance and social progress uh, is distorted. Uh, it doesn't take into account environmental degradation. It doesn't take into account resource depletion. Because what we measure affects what we do, if we measure the wrong things, we'll do the wrong things. And uh, this pursuit of this wrong measure, GDP, has, I think, badly led to, to a large number of bad decisions. Um, the uh, hope is that one of the things that will come out of the crisis, that we, we, we will re rethink about where we want to be going. As I describe it in the book, we've been at a near-death experience, and near-death experiences often have the effect of making people think about uh, their life. And our economy's been at a near-death experience, and I think it really is an important occasion for us to think about what we, as a society, should, uh, should be directing our scarce resources, how we should be allocating them. Well, uh, let me return to the theme that I began with, Adam Smith. Um, in accomplishing this restructuring, these new directions that I've talked about, uh, one of the things that we will have to do is uh, restore the balance between the market and government. That is, in a sense, one of the most important lessons to come out of the crisis. What caused the crisis, in a sense, was uh, this ideology, this belief that markets were self-regulating, uh, efficient, stable on their own. And the result of that is that we withdrew uh, government from fulfilling its key roles, both its restraining roles, but also its creative roles. 
if we're going to uh, achieve the, the kind of reforms, the kind of society that I think we, 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 we aspire to, we're going to have to restore the balance between markets and the stakes in a way I think that Adam Smith uh, would, would uh, uh, agree with uh, if we were to adapt uh, his uh, theories to the 21st century. Thank you. Thank you very much. You'll notice there that uh, Professor Stiglitz said that he, uh, he was rather sorry that so many young people now went into financial services rather than humanities. I think our four unexpected guests are probably not aiming their talents at the financial services. <laughs> um, I don't want to take up too much of the audience's time, Joe, because they've been very patient in trying circumstances. Um, but there is one thing I wanted to try and make a connection between uh, the US and the UK in, in one particular regard. Um, as you may know, a strand of government policy here, an important strand of government policy at the moment, is the big society, the notion that as government claws back, uh, draws back from, from investing in, in various projects, societal projects, that we, civic society, will take up the slack. Now, you argue that that's a dangerous path to go down. Well, I mean, there, there is a role for, you might say, the third, gr third group. It's not just private and public. Uh, uh, there is a voluntary civil society. I, it, it, it can play a very important role. But if you look at, uh, just to let me, I, I mentioned the restraining role. The private sector, uh, the voluntary sector can't restrain uh, the banks from their bad behavior. That has to be government. That's the only people yep. that can do it. And the same thing on the cr positive side. Uh, think about what was the most important innovation of the latter part of the 20th century. It was the internet. Who financed the internet? Government. What was the other important innovation? A lot of uh, the, the decoding the human genome. That was publicly provided. Uh, and so these are really functions that can't uh, be undertaken by the voluntary sector. So yes, there is a role for the voluntary sector, but it can't fill in the gap. And there's, there's one other thing in terms of current policy here that I'd like you just quickly to address. You, you said in, in the course of your fascinating address that there were two ways of tackling this kind of crisis. You could uh, invest your way out of it or you could concentrate on cutting the deficit. And as far as you were concerned, cutting the deficit had never been proved right or cutting it too quickly had never been proved right. Do you have a message for our Chancellor? <laughs> uh, well, I don't want to interfere in, in British politics. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but I think the economics is pretty clear uh, that, uh, uh, you know, we can never be certain in economics, but I would say this is as certain as one can be that uh, uh, this kind of cutting back in expenditures will lead to lower outcomes, lower uh, economic performance, lower, uh, higher unemployment. Uh, and that the result of that is that tax revenues will go down and that uh, at the same time, particularly when you're cutting back something like education, investments in technology, it's going to impair long run economic growth. Uh, you know, while we're, you know, while the UK is cutting back, uh, China is doing massive investments in, in uh, infrastructure, green technology, universities. Uh, you know, it's a competitive world out there, and uh, let, me, let me put it in one other way that, that I think that may be uh, useful. No firm would ever look at one side of its balance sheet. Nobody would say, here is a firm's liabilities. What you want to look at is its total balance sheet, what its owes and what its assets are. And if you can get, if you can borrow money at close to zero interest rate, and you can get investments that yield high returns, then it would be foolish not to make those investments. And for some reason, those in the financial sector, and I agree that they've been very short-sighted, those in the financial sector keep looking at only one side of the government's balance sheet, which is its liabilities. They never look at the assets. And in that short-sighted way, they are actually weakening uh, the, the overall uh, strength of the economy. So your message is don't do it, George. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. right.
are lots of questions, I know, but could you just, there are two microphones, uh, as long as the, the holders aren't, aren't too shell-shocked. Uh, gentleman in the blue shirt there, and a uh, lady in the red cardigan there. In fact, a very recognisable one, I think. I don't know whether I should call you Professor Stiglitz. Um, over here, sorry, looking the other way. Other way again? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> if it helps. Um, my question was just like your ex example from Japan. Japan had the advantage of lots of savings, very low interest rates, the rest of the world booming. Made a lot of investments that were fairly duff, concreted over a lot of the country to no benefit. Um, what's the danger that if the government tries to invest its way out of a recession, they invest in the wrong things, picks the wrong winners, white elephants, you know, all cathedrals in the desert, all that? Do you want to take two or three questions at a time? Just, and just, just take that one if you don't want oh, to. Okay, I'm not fine. sure of the time. I mean, uh, there's always a risk of uh, misinvestment. I mean, absolutely clear. Uh, I should say that uh, no government has ever wasted money in the magnitude that the U.S. private financial sector did. So it will be very hard to outcompete the U.S. finance. Uh, but you can succeed if you work hard at it. Let me, let me, let me, uh, but, uh, Studies that we've done in the United States, uh, so you know, where I'm more familiar with the data, show that the average return, not the marginal, the average return to investments in technology uh, in the public sector are extraordinarily high. They were about 70%. Uh, and uh, returns to infrastructure are very high. Now, uh, eventually, I mean, the problem in Japan is that uh, they never got around to fixing their financial sector the right way. And eventually you pave over a whole country and yes, there are diminishing returns to infrastructure. So eventually, I mean, Japan does have a difficult problem. But at least looking at the United States, our infrastructure is in shambles and we even know what need, uh, needs to be done. Let me just give you one example. Uh, in the year 2000, a list of what were the key infrastructure investments uh, where it was made. At the top of the list was New Orleans levees. If we had spent $5 billion on those New Orleans levees, we would have saved over $200 billion, let alone lives and chaos. Now, that, the return on that investment was, would have been enormous. And we knew what was needed. It was a short-sighted policy, not to make those investments. And that was the budget stringency, but it was a, you can say they made the wrong investment. What they invested in was tax cuts for the rich. And that was a bad investment. Yes. Um, you juxtaposed the economics of Herbert Hoover with Keynesian economics. Now here in Britain, um, the government, the outgoing chancellor of the Exchequer, and at least four of the five Labour leadership candidates have bought, <laughs> have, have bought into the economics of Herbert Hoover. The only difference is around timing. I mean, you make a very compelling intellectual case. Tell me what is so emotionally compelling about the economics of Herbert Hoover? Uh, I, I find it uh, a little bit confusing as well. Uh, but I can tell you part of the, the politic, that you might say the special interest. If you had a government bond, one of the things that you uh, want is uh, interest rates to be low because then you get a capital gain on the bonds. So financial markets like interest rates to be low because the value of their bonds go up and so they're always worrying, once they've issued the bonds at high interest rates, to get interest rates lower so they make a capital gain. So there are some special interests involved, uh, and it's not surprising that the you know, financial sector are the strongest advocates of this kind, kind of stringency, except, except at one point, uh, our um, deficit hawks in the financial sector went on vacation in uh, September of 2008, uh, when we began the bank bailouts, they forgot about balanced budgets for that short period when there was a trillion dollars going out to them. Uh, they came back around March of 2009 when it was clear that there was not going to be any more money for the bankers. Uh, and then they come back with a vengeance now. So I think you can see some of this is simply special interest.
tweeting. But, but I think it's also ideology. You know, people do get confused. Uh, one more argument, let me just explain. There's an easy confusion between a, uh, a household and a government. As a household, if you're spending more than your income, you're in a problem. You know, you're on your way to bankruptcy, right? And there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, you either have to cut, earn more money, which is difficult, or cut back your spending. Governments, countries are very different because when you cut back your expenditures, the economy gets weaker. Your revenues decline. And that's a totally different situation from the household. So this analogy between the household, which is very persuasive, uh, is not applicable. And uh, a lot of people get, get deceived by it. Thank you. There's somebody in a striped, a lady in a striped uh, there, and then a gentleman in a pink shirt on the aisle up there. Could we get the other mic around there? Um, I, it is the bond market that I wanted to ask you about, because if another trillion dollars is issued by Mr. Bernanke, who's going to be buying the bonds? I mean, what happens when people cannot buy any more bonds? Um, surely that day will come, or uh, effectively we'll all end up totally nationalized. <laughs> well, just to, to, so you know where, where things are in the United States uh, in terms of the Fed, uh, over the last uh, year and a half, um, two years, uh, the Fed has been propping up uh, our, our housing market, our mortgage market. So it now owns $1.2 trillion of mortgages. No one else wants to buy them uh, for good reason. Uh, and uh, uh, the question is, can, it's related to, can the government continue to, to uh, borrow? Well, right now, the US government is borrowing at close to zero interest rate. Never had a lower interest rate, which is a statement that the market, as foolish as they may be, still has confidence in the US government. That is to say, they're willing to lend to the United States. They're not worried about it. Uh, partly, uh, all of these things are uh, what I call negative beauty contests. Um, that is to say, they look around the world and they say, where would I rather put money? And the United States may be terrible, but every other place is worse. Uh, so uh, that keeps interest rates uh, relatively low. But the flip side of what I said before, the weakness of the American economy is people aren't consuming. What, what does that mean? They're saving. And they have to put their savings somewhere. And the real sector of the economy remains fragile, and so they're willing to buy U.S. government bonds at close to zero interest rates. So right now, this is not a problem. And this goes back to the question of timing. Uh, right now, we have no problem of financing a continuation of our stimulus. It's not a problem. You know, eventually it could be a problem, but we are not there yet, and it's very foolish not to be making these investments these high-return investments that exist. We're not like Japan where we paved over the whole country. We still have huge returns in investments in technology, education, and infrastructure. So to me, uh, the current situation is really a, a, a no-brainer. Now, eventually, if uh, uh, we could wind up in a problem, but we're talking about five, 10 years down the road. Gentleman with a pink shirt. And then is there somebody from over there? Yes, a lady with the red hair up there. Gentleman with a pink shirt first. Yes, ass assuming that uh, competition controls profits, why hasn't it worked for the banking industry and for bankers as employees? Is, it, is there a cartel? Uh, that's a really good question. I, I think the persistence of high profits is evidence of some imperfections of competition, absolutely. In some areas, we know that there is uh, heavy concentration. Let me just give you uh, a, a couple of examples. Uh, the credit card industry is a very non-competitive industry. You look at the concentration, uh, very non-competitive. Now, some of what the, the reason for their profits there is exploiting uninformed consumers, predatory lending practices uh, that are uh, unfortunately uh, universal. Uh, a few countries, Australia has tried to curb the, uh, some of these practices. Uh, and has broken some of, you know, has recognized the, the not lack of competition in the credit card industry and has tried to restrict it. 
um, uh, to deal with it. Uh, in the derivatives, four banks in the United States write about 90, 95% of all the derivatives. And they do it in a very non-transparent way. So deliberately in a way so that competition is weakened. Uh, you know, normally we say transparency is a good thing. In the East Asia crisis, we gave all kind of lectures to East Asia about lack of transparency. But our banks were really uh, marvelous in thinking about how to be non-transparent. Uh, and uh, uh, that undermines the force of competition. So it seems to me that the persistence of, of these high profits is clearly symptomatic of a lack of competition and something ought to be done about it. One more remark, uh, the way the United States and a number of other countries addressed the financial crisis Led to, has led to less competition. We have more, a more concentrated banking system, so the problems have gotten worse. Uh, one of my criticisms of the bank bailouts is that we didn't think about exactly that long-run problem. And so what we did is we bailed out the big banks, merged them, made them even bigger, and let the smaller banks that are the competitive part go bankrupt. 140 banks in the United States went bankrupt last year, and the number going bankrupt this year is even larger. Lady in the red here, yep. Uh, Professor Stieglitz, uh, in your closing remarks, you pointed us towards the way forward, and you talked about a rebalancing between the market and the state. I would feel less confident, uh, sorry, more confident about that occurring and having real purchase, were it not for the fact that certainly in Britain and in quite a lot of other societies, since the 1980s, the values of the market have infected the public sphere to such a deep degree. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of public and social goods like health and education, whose distribution initially and now whose constitution is very much affected by market values, where the so-called invisible hand twists the arms of the key players, and there are as many perverse incentives it seems to me, as there are in the financial sector. So would you like to comment on how that affects uh, the kind of hope we have of a rebalancing of market and state? Yeah, what, one of the uh, problems, that you, you, you hit a, a, you might say a sensitivity, because I, I talk about market failure, I talk about rebalancing markets and the state, and uh, an accusation that often is raised is I don't, uh, appreciate enough uh, the limitations, the failures uh, in government. And I just say, you know, anybody who's lived through the Bush administration in the United States understands government failure. Uh, so so uh, I, I do appreciate uh, that. And, and that's why one of the things I talk about, one of the basic reforms that we need is reforms in our political process. And I, you know, I'm very much more aware of the problems in the United States than I am in the UK. But for instance, our campaign contributions, uh, our lobbying uh, distorts uh, the way our public sector functions. I mean, just to give you one number, uh, there are five lobbyists from the financial sector for every congressman. So they can't even go to the bathroom without being chased <laughs> by a lobbyist. Uh, but it's not just in the financial sector, you mentioned health, uh, the uh, pharmaceutical industry got effectively a trillion dollar gift uh, in the Bush administration by a one you know, very brief provision in a bill where we provided drugs for uh, the elderly, they said the government could not bargain for the prices of those drugs. I mean, just phenomenal. And that cost of that one little provision a lot of lobbying is a trillion dollars. Uh, so uh, to me, if we're going to succeed, we have to have civic engagement, uh, civil society, and reform of campaign bills, uh, access, you know, the, the way people get, uh, get information about uh, um, using the public airways. So there are a number of, of reforms in the political process that I think are absolutely necessary if we're going to get that, the public sector to do what it has to do. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm aware that a lot of you might feel you're being shortchanged by us stopping in time, but unfortunately the logistics of this wonderful book festival are that um, 
this size of audience has to get out and another one of the same size has to get in within <laughs> half an hour. So I must apologise. I, I will, however, remind you that Professor Stieglitz will be in the signing tent and I'm sure we'll be happy to talk to you there in a few minutes left and left again for those of you who haven't been there before. In the meantime, uh, it's been an interesting afternoon in many ways. Could I ask you to join me in thanking Professor Stieglitz? <laughs>